0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen.
1: As much as I do, but man, I've been going through a, a situation in my life, I was just talking to Rachel the other day and, And just like, man, I don't have it in me to love someone that has hurt me deeply. And I'm going through a a situation where I'm uh, fighting some resentment, fighting some bitterness, uh, holding on to some unforgiveness, just really, man, just in a spot of a situation in my life. And so, man, that song, I was just like, God, please renew my strength, because Steve Brown don't have it. Uh, And so that song was just super ministering to my heart, just so grateful for our team and, and for all that you guys do, and Dave, thanks for running sound today, man. You're doing great. And uh, and uh, the other thing is, is just during the keeping marriages healthy announcement, I just looked up at Rachel and said, Rachel, they get to hear from me a lot, uh, baby. Would you just mind sharing with them? And, and I ask her just maybe why that people, maybe why they should come, why why they should sign up for keeping marriages healthy, and so they get to hear from me all the time. But you're a co-teacher on that day as we just kind of share uh, stuff from the Word and stuff from our experiences. And we get very vulnerable with how we've messed things up and how we fresh encounters of how we've gotten it wrong and gotten it right and just invite others along the journey with us. So I so want you to share with them. Uh, but but anybody, anyway, if anybody doesn't know, this is my bride, Rachel. And, man, she is all that I am. Could y'all just give her a hand, just show how much you love her. <laughs> I love you. <ya. laughs> Go ahead, sweetie.
0: So, on the spot, with just a few moments of um, <laughs> preparation, um, the first thing that came to my mind, and I don't know why, but does anybody have, like, a knife, a butter knife in their silverware drawer at home that's maybe just bent a little bit on the end, or a fork? Anybody? Just me? Got a couple of those. Okay. And and why is it like that?
1: Because you used it?
0: Because somebody tried did You try to use it as a screwdriver instead. <laughs> Or, you know, pop a can open or, you know, to do something that it wasn't really intended to do. Um, and so it's just an ever-constant reminder that, you know, that's that's not what that was for. Um, to me, one of the biggest reasons, I think, that, that, that married couples or anyone in a serious relationship, anyone who's even just trying to prepare to be a, a good spouse one day, because um, we welcome singles as well— um, <clears throat> Uh, to come and and just learn is the tools that you will be provided Um, relationships are hard and a lot of times we're in our relationships really trying to use a butter knife um, to fix something that's meant for a screwdriver and so what we really hope to do that day is to equip you with tools that are going to help you navigate the difficulties that come they're inevitable in in relationships right and and mostly with that person that you you live with 24-7 and so, please come and enjoy um, just a day. We want to hang out with you guys, get to know you. We want you to build some relationships with other couples because um, we just we're not meant to do this alone. We cannot do it alone, and you can't do it Amen. alone either. And Amen. so, um, we just want to help equip you with tools um, that we can all share and um, have have healthy marriages and be mm. healthy spouses. That's great, baby. Loved ones.
1: That's great, man. See now you know why I brought her up here. That's right. Give her, man. Wow. And she did that on the spot. Wow. And I'm telling you, man, she's an amazing first lady. I love it. Uh, she is my first wife, so um, my first and my last. Uh, you know, here's something, man. I, I don't just say this uh, to say it, but I want you to know that right there is where amazing happens for me. Just just want you to know that. That's where amazing happens. And, and man, I, we just love what we have we have fought for it, we have worked for it, and we sure would love to share it. So please come hang out with us. Keep your marriage healthy there on March the 4th. Uh, but man, anyway, we talk about incentives, right? Y'all remember we talked about incentives a little bit ago? Uh, man, uh, here's here's an incentive, man. Uh, I remember a long time ago, uh, man, I was working a job, and they were like, hey, nobody has to work overtime. Uh, But man, we've got these things coming in, and and, man, if you guys would stay and unload these trucks on Saturdays, we'll pay you overtime for it. And man, I'm telling you, when we were living and it was like a bunch of kids and really no money and a whole lot of expenses, man, overtime sounded good to me. (laughs) So I went and worked overtime because you get paid, what, time and a half, right? I mean, that's a pretty good incentive, right? I mean, that works. Uh, that was cool. I remember I was working another job and they said, hey, it's one of those, uh, Dave, you know, safety Dave back there. It was one of those things where it's, they said, hey, if we have no accidents this entire month, we'll take everybody out for a steak dinner. And man, it was like, everybody was like, bro. I mean, it was like, don't do that. You know, everybody was on their P's and Q's, man. It was cool. Uh, I played football uh, most of my, my my growing up years, and we had this thing where we played football. Um, think, don't think Texas mountains. Think some real big mountains, and so um, that's not a slam. It's just they're different. Um, but think, you know, huge mountains, man, back in the Appalachian Mountains or things like that, and and so our high school football field was in the the valley of these two huge mountains literally, like it was right there in the mountains. And so for practice, when we would do a lot of bad things during a game, the coach would make us run up the mountain until we all threw up. That's just kind of what, kind of what happened. Well, I just remember one day the coach came in, and he says, hey, no death drills, that's what we call them, if there's no turnovers next week in next week's game. And so, man, all week long, man, we were just begging people, man, hold the ball, do what you got, think smart. And of course, it didn't work. Um, you know, somebody turned the ball over, and, and it was hard not to be mad at the person who turned the ball over. Y'all know that works. Uh, but man, I just remember some of that uh, incentive stuff. It kind of works. Sometimes it doesn't. I read this story, though, about a man was lying on an operating table, and his surgeon was his son. And so he's on the operating table, and he looks up to his son, and he says, son, think of it this way. If you mess this up, your mother's coming to live with you. <laughs> That's some incentive right there. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to say, I don't know how you feel about that. But you're saying, man, what in the world are you doing? And where are you headed this morning? Well, well think about it like this. Man, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, you can turn there. We're going to be reading verses 29 through 34. And here's where Paul is at in our text. Paul now moves to talk about some incentives For the resurrection. He said, Here, you know a lot of this theory, you know all this stuff out here, but let me tell you really the the incentives of the resurrection. In other words, what you can kind of count on uh, because of the resurrection. Like, if if this is true, then here's some things that would incentivize you to really follow through with the resurrection. Uh, And here, maybe we should go a little, little theological just for a moment. All Bible doctrine, in other words, what we believe, all theology, the truth that we teach about God, all truth in scripture is given in order that it might bring about a response. It's not meant to make us smarter. It's meant to, to make us rightly connected with God and others. Said differently, right doctrine always leads to right behavior. I've said it from this pulpit a thousand times. What you believe determines how you behave. You behave what you believe every single day of your life. Right doctrine leads to right behavior, which is why we emphasize right doctrine here, because we want people to be able to behave in ways that please the Lord. Right principles lead to right conduct. So scripture is never intended to be theory. It is always intended to have practical incentives built into it. As we come to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look that Paul gives three incentives of the resurrection. Said differently, if you're not tracking along there, if we don't have a bodily resurrection, then we lose some incentives for our lives to live like Christ. If there is no resurrection, we would not live as holy as we attempt to live. In a very succinct fashion, people are not going to give their life to something they really don't have hope in. And if there's no bodily resurrection, what makes you think for a moment that somebody would want to become a Christian? I mean, if we just kind of all die and that's it, I mean, what what hope is there in that? Or what makes us think for a moment that anybody would live a sacrificial life and die and suffer for the things of God if there isn't a resurrection? What what would we believe? Why would people live holy? I mean, why would we say no to so many things that, that please our flesh? Why would we do that if there is no resurrection? If there's no reward, if there's no punishment, if there's never any accountability, why would we do what we do if there is no bodily resurrection of the believer? but On the other hand, if there is a resurrection, if we will face Christ, if, if we will have to be at the judgment seat of Christ, if there will be a day of reunion in heaven, if there will be a time when we dwell with the Lord and the, the saints of the ages forever, if there will be all those things in eternity for which we can hope and believe, then there is incentive for this life. And that's really what we're after this morning. If you remove the possibility of the resurrection, you remove the great incentives to live as resurrected people. That's what he's saying. So Paul in our text this morning gives us three incentives for the resurrection. And so now this morning, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 29 through 34. And now I will, as I told you last week, ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 15, It'll be on the screen behind me, and hopefully you've brought your copy of God's Word with you. If you didn't, there are some Bibles in the seats, underneath the seats around you or in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible begins this way this morning. He says, otherwise, what will, those, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? What? I mean, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they being baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And if from human motives I fought the wild beast at Ephesus, what does it profit me? I mean, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts, good morals. Be sober-minded as you are, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I told you Paul gives us three incentives, and here's something. I have an incentive for you. <laughs> I'm not going to cover all three this morning, <laughs> okay? So just be, be known that. I, I realize what time it is, okay? But here's what I need you to know. That The first thing that I think Paul teaches us is that resurrection is an incentive for embracing salvation. Resurrection is an incentive for embracing salvation. If you've ever prayed for your pastor while he's preaching, begin praying now. Because I'm going to jump into one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. So stick with me here. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? I need you to know that I have an interpretation to offer you this morning, but it is that. I do not claim to have the interpretation. I am offering an interpretation. I humbly submit to you that after much study, this is the conclusion that I have. I may study more in the years to come and come down to a completely different one, but I think maybe you would agree that context and other things would maybe dictate that this is maybe perhaps where we need to land on this. If you disagree with me, we can agree to disagree, but let's kind of dive into it a little bit. Let me just make this statement again, and let's go from there. Resurrection is an incentive for embracing salvation. In other words, people come to Christ are saved from their sins because of the hope of the resurrection. You know that becoming a Christian means I don't have to look at the emptiness and bleakness of a grave, right? Right? I mean, we have this resurrection hope. I mean, to become a Christian means that I can be rejoined with everyone else and spend eternity with them who have been saved, right? To become a Christian means I can enter into heaven, I can dwell with God, I live in his kingdom and enjoy all that heaven has to offer. You see, it's a great incentive for salvation. I think basically that's what Paul is saying there in just super simple language. So I know you may be thinking, and if I were you, here's what I would be thinking. Pastor, how in the world do we get to that from just reading verse 29? How do we go there? How do you get that boiled down to that kind of simplicity? How do you do that? Well, I want to tell you that sometimes we can find out what something is by defining what it's not. And so I think that we have to kind of look at that. So to understand what this is saying, we can understand that by looking at definitely what it's not saying. And we have some very clear places in Scripture to where it's telling us this is not what this means. So the first thing is this, salvation does not happen by proxy baptism. Salvation does not happen by proxy baptism. So there in the text, it says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If they're not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? In other words, there's some baptism going on for dead people. I want you to know that, that, yes, I'm telling you that I disagree vehemently with the Mormon church. I cannot, cannot tell you. It is a cult, it is not of God. But I need you to know this is where they've developed their theology. This is why they do the genealogies. This is why they're the best at it in the world. Because they would hold to the fact. That this is what this verse means, that somebody can be baptized for a dead person. And when they're baptized for that dead person, that dead person can now be saved. Well, that would be an incentive for me to find everybody that I've ever been related to and be baptized for them so that they can be saved. That's where they get this from. The Mormons would call this vicarious in the place of baptism. Baptism. Mormons, though, I need you to understand, were not the first people to embrace this heresy. There were some early church fathers known as Sarenth and Martian. And even back then, they were kind of trying to proclaim this, that somebody could be baptized for a dead person. And it was quickly, quickly considered heresy by the early church. So really, what is this kind of belief? It kind of goes like this. They would say that Paul is saying that a Christian who is alive and has been baptized can get rebaptized for a dead person so that that dead person can be saved through the other person's baptism. The Mormons would teach, though, that the spirits of those who have died cannot enter heaven unless a Mormon is baptized for them by proxy. It's kind of like some other churches who say you can't go to heaven unless you've been baptized in our church. But I'll leave that alone because I get enough hate mail. A couple of things immediately present themselves as major problems of this understanding. First, let me help you and let me just help you understand some biblical interpretation here. You never try to develop a doctrine in the scripture or in your life from an unclear text. It's just not wise. You always let the clear text determine the unclear text. It's just a great principle to live by. So then, if we let the clear text determine the unclear, we see that nowhere in the Bible do we see that anyone can be baptized for anyone else. Secondly, nowhere in the Bible do we see that baptism saves anybody. Jesus saves people. Baptisms and prayers don't save people. Jesus saves people. Baptism is then a picture of what's happened to someone who believes, if you look here, this is a watery tomb. So when somebody is baptized, they stand there saying, I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for me. I believe that Jesus Christ was buried for me. And I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead for me. Therefore, I am now crucified with Christ. And it is not I who live, but now I live by the faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. It is a picture of what has happened in somebody's heart. Salvation has already taken place. They're just now proclaiming it to everybody else that this is what I believe. This ring on my finger did not make me married. This ring can marry nobody. It is a symbol that I'm already married. If I take this off or if I never had a wedding ring, does it mean that I'm not married? No. If you're not baptized or if you've forgotten that you've been baptized, does it mean that you've not been saved? No. It is a sign of a covenant. It didn't make the covenant. It's a sign that one's existed. That's exactly what's happening in baptism. That's what the scriptures are clear Hebrews 9, 27 says it this way. It is much appointed for man to die once, and after that comes his baptism. Or after that comes somebody else being baptized for him. Is that what the scripture says? No, the scripture says it is appointed for man to die once, and then what? The judgment, folks. It doesn't say that after death comes baptism. That's not what it says. It says before death comes salvation, or there is only judgment to be looked forward to. So we know very clearly that the scripture teaches elsewhere that this interpretation that the Mormons and others who have held this view that somebody could be baptized for somebody for their salvation is completely incorrect. Salvation does not happen through proxy baptism. So then what is this saying? Then salvation does happen through personal belief. Salvation does happen through personal belief. Look there in verse 29 yet again, because we've got to get the language so that when I unpack it, you'll be familiar. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized? Just hang on that word baptized and then for the dead. okay? because we've got some groups here. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now we've got all kinds of people here. So let's let's kind of break this down. Let's start out with the word baptize. Let's break that piece down and let's just kind of go there. Baptize. The word baptism in the scripture always refers to Christian baptism. In other words, what that means is that baptism always follows salvation. You will never see it anywhere else in the scripture explained that way. It's the normal term. So whenever you see in the New Testament, the idea of water baptism, you should know that it is synonymous with somebody's salvation. In the early church, they didn't have an author call like we do. In the early church, if somebody wanted to confess their faith in Christ, they were immediately baptized. That's what showed that they had received the salvation. So then the early church, the question you get Paul is asking all the time, hey man, have you ever been baptized? That literally meant, have you ever been saved? And as a result of that, did you demonstrate that through telling everybody else that you believe that through baptism? Very synonymous terms. So, this always goes back to the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Jesus didn't teach baptismal regeneration. That's a big word that means that you can be born again through baptism. You're regenerated from death to life through your baptism. Jesus is not teaching that you go out there and baptize people and that's what makes them right with God. When he says, go into all the world and make disciples, well, how do you first make disciples? You first have to do what Paul has mentioned earlier, contextually, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says this, for I delivered to you as a first importance that I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We have to teach people that, We make disciples by saying, that's the gospel. And if you want to follow Christ, be his disciple, you first have to believe that. That's where we start. So if they believe, personally believe that, that gospel that Paul has shared, then they're baptized as an indication and a sign that they have been crucified, buried, and will be raised with Christ. And then you teach them how to live like Christ. So salvation comes through personal belief in Christ. In other words, from the very utterance of Jesus, baptism was used as a term synonymously with salvation. You can see this in many cases, like when Paul talks, for example, to the people in Acts chapter 19. They were disciples of John, and he asked them if they'd been baptized. He's not talking about the ritual. He's talking about if they really come to know Jesus through placing personal faith in him. They're synonymous terms. So, If you see and understand the context of how a word is used scripturally and biblically, now, therefore, you can place that meaning into an unclear text and determine what this text means. So if this is being used in the type of a synonym, when you look here, you could read it this way. Otherwise, what will they do who were saved? Just, Just work with me here. What will we do? What will those do who, who are saved? And that's the they would probably be somebody who is not a Christian. So, so what would these people do who are being saved, right? Not baptism, but, but really being saved and then having baptized as a result of that. But, but here we go, the synonym. Then you got to go to the next words, okay? So what? Otherwise, what will they do who are being saved for the dead? Now, we know, we've just covered that nobody could get saved for the dead. So, can someone get baptized for the dead? Well, let's look again, because there's another thing that you have to understand in Greek. The word for there in the Greek is the word huper. And it's a word that can be translated by no less than probably 12 different words. You could translate that, uh, who are being baptized, you could say over the dead, above the dead, across the dead, beyond the dead, on behalf of the dead, instead of the dead, in the name of the dead, because of the dead, in reference to the dead, with regard to the dead, and therefore you see the problem. If that is the, the many ways that that word can be used, then we have to let context determine which way we use that word. We let scripture interpret scripture. So therefore, we have to pick one. And again, as I look at it, I think perhaps the best way would be to use it in a casual sense, a causal sense. In other words, because of. So it could be translated this way. Otherwise, some people, some unbelieving people are being saved because of the dead. Otherwise, some people are being saved because of the dead. Now we have to determine who the dead are. And most likely it is the dead that are Christians. So let's put it all together. Otherwise, what will those unbelievers do who are being saved because of dead Christians? I mean, if the dead, if Christians are not bodily raised at all, why then would an unbeliever ever want to be saved in the first place? That's what Paul is saying. If there is no resurrection of the dead then why are people coming to Christ because of the testimony and witness of those who had died for their faith? That's what Paul's saying. Why would anybody be saved and put their hope in a resurrection if there is no resurrection? So he says there, why would they do that if the dead don't rise? I mean, if the dead don't rise at all, why then are people being saved because of their witness? Because see, the resurrection is a great incentive for people to come to Christ. The resurrection is this incentive for for embracing salvation. So think about it with me. There are some people who come to Christ and are saved because of the assurance that they've seen in another Christian about their own resurrection. I mean, I've seen this happen. An unbeliever sees a Christian and he watches that Christian face death. Death. And that Christian has hope and has confidence. And then the unbeliever is encouraged by that. And then the unbeliever says, man, you've got something that I don't have. What is it that you have? And it leads them to embrace the same salvation of the person they just watched die. Another thing about it is Christians have the hope of being reunited with all other Christians. And and, and so Christians on their deathbed, they're like, hey, man, I'm going to go get to see my mother and my father and my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they just have this great hope and this encouragement. And so at a funeral, I've said this numerous times, you know, the person that we're burying, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they went to be with their beloved brothers and sisters. They went to be with their husband. They went to be with their wife. And if you, beloved, out there within the sound of my voice will, will, will come to Christ, you can be reunited with your loved ones. You hear this stuff all the time. And I dare it would say that some people come to Christ because they want to be reunited with people that they love. It is a real reality. I mean, I've seen a husband who wouldn't come to Christ for any reason finally come to Christ after his wife died because he wanted to be with her in heaven. I've seen it happen in the case of of mothers that are dying, of children that have been wayward and rebellious. They come to Christ in hope that they could be reunited with their family members that they rebelled against. It happens, folks. The resurrection of Christ is an incentive for people to come to salvation. Paul is saying, if there is no reunions, if there's no fulfillment for for hope, if if there's none of that, then why are people being saved because of other people's belief in the resurrection? It's a great incentive. Anticipation of the hope of resurrection is a great incentive. I mean, if there is no resurrection, we do not have those incentives. We'll have to say to somebody, look, your loved one is dead, but don't worry about it because this is all there is. Is that what we want to say? I mean, redemptive history winds up as lad. A commentator says redemptive history then, then, then just winds up in a that in a Palestinian grave. I mean, that's all we've got to look forward to is a grave. I mean, all we've got to offer people is, listen, if your loved one dies, you're never going to see them again. You're never going to see anybody again. And so it just completely destroys the incentives that we have for the resurrection. But you see, the Bible says something very differently, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 13 through 18, the Bible says this, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about, about those who have, are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve, right, as indeed the rest of mankind do who have no hope. Watch this. Here's Paul saying the same language. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel and the voice of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then here's the incentive. We who are alive who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will all we, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If the resurrection isn't true, we have nothing to comfort people with. The resurrection is a great incentive for embracing salvation. Reunion has always been in the heart of the believer. And many have come to Christ because of the the, the hope of reunion. Many have come to Christ because they've seen the confidence of somebody dying I mean, how can you have that kind of faith? I don't know what you you have. And they come to Christ after that person has died because of their testimony. And I, I can't help but think, just to be honest with you, that over in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, in Acts chapter 7, it says, and they laid their cloaks, the people that were stoning him, they laid their cloaks at the foot of a man named Saul. And we know that Saul turns out to be Paul. I can't help that the Holy Spirit kind of put that in the scripture to kind of let us think about that the Apostle Paul must have never forgotten the shining face of Stephen. The forgiveness that was in his heart. The hope that Stephen had in the face of death and just maybe the remembrance of that great hope that that dead Stephen had was part of the reason why Paul came to faith in Christ. I mean, I'm stoning this dude, but in the face of it, he's forgiving and he has this hope that he's going to see God. I've got to believe that was a great incentive for Paul to embrace the salvation that he did when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. So I want you to think about it this way, and I have very little time. Y'all know that my story of my childhood is one of those kind of crazy stories, but I want to tell you about my mom. My mom was a great lady, but she did not know the Lord. And I can remember one year when we had, I think it was three small children, my oldest daughter, whose name is Kaylee. We were going on a mission trip to Puerto Rico. And my daughter Kaylee wanted to write her Nana. That's what she called her Nana Ann. That was my mom's name was Ann. Kaylee wrote a letter to Nana Ann telling her about the trip and ask Nana Ann to pray for her. And then I wrote a letter to my mom a couple of weeks later, one of the many that I write to my mom often, telling my mom, Mom, I'm going on another trip. And if I should die before I get here, Mom, before I return, if something happens to me, Mom, I want you to know. Mama, that I will stand in heaven, and I will search heaven day and night looking for you. Mama, I'm not going to give up hoping that you will embrace this faith that I have. My mom was in her early 60s, and I can remember that she called me one day, and she said, Stephen, I've got to tell you something. I said, Mom, tell me. And she said, Stephen, I've placed my faith in Jesus and I'm going to be baptized in two weeks. Can you come and watch? And I was overwhelmed with joy. I can't tell you how much it did in my heart to hear my mom say those words. And I said, Mom, Mom, tell me me what's happened. I mean, you've been so resistant to this gospel. What happened? My mom said some things like this. She said, well, sweetie, when I received the letter, From my granddaughter Kaylee, that she was willing to go to another land to tell people about something she believed at that young of an age, it challenged me in my heart to say there must be something more worth living for. And then she said, Stephen, the fact that you would say to me that you would look heaven one side and down the other, and do that for years. You've been doing this for years, believing that you're going to be there in heaven and that you want me to be there too. God broke my heart over that. And I had to give my life to Christ. So what do I tell you that? Because I'm telling you, the resurrection is one of the greatest incentives for embracing salvation. The hope that we have that we will be reunited with Christ and that we will be reunited with our loved ones is what Paul is getting after here. And beloved, that would change the way you live, which we don't have time to get into today. So Jeremy and those who are playing today, if you would come. Let me say this negatively or negatively not negatively in a sense of bad, but differently. And if dead people do not rise, there is no reunion with Christ, and the grave is the end. So then why would anybody want to embrace our Christ if he's still in the grave? I don't know where you're at this morning. But I can certainly tell you this. There are people in this church who love you. And if you've never given your life to Christ, we do not stand in judgment over you. Our hearts are actually broken that you don't know what we know. You have never experienced the forgiveness that, that we've experienced, that, that you don't know the, the relationship that we have with this amazing God. And, and so our, our desire for you to come to Christ is one of love. We, we want you to have and, and to, find, to be able to find what we found. So, yes, we have to tell you the truth. Yes, we have to tell you the truth. If you don't embrace Christ, then we can never be together again. That's just the truth. But we tell you that because we want you to be with us. So if you've never given your life to Christ, man, can I just tell you today, Justin prayed it earlier, that today would be the day of salvation for you. I've just got a feeling that there are a lot of people in the room today. I'm just looking around. I'm trying to make as much eye contact as I can. I I see a lot of people who know the Lord in here today. So then what do you do with an invitation like this? Well, I guarantee you know somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Because you have the hope of the resurrection, man, it would behoove you and it would behoove me that we pray like never before, fervently intercede today that God would open their eyes and that they could receive Christ. That would be what you could do today. Or you could simply come down to this altar and just get on your knees and just say, God, thank you. Thank you that you've had such mercy on me. And just worship him because you know the hope that you have. There are tons of other things, man, that I know that the spirit of God speaks in your heart when we're preaching the word. (laughs) I know how he does that. Maybe you want to pray about something. Maybe you're sick and you just maybe wonder if we could anoint you with oil and, and maybe pray over you. We can do that. If you want to talk about, hey, man, what do I do to maybe begin joining this fellowship? Well, man, we got answers for you. Maybe you want to talk about just what's going on in your life. Maybe you want to celebrate something. I don't know, but this author will be open. But if you need the Lord Jesus Christ, man, today, Justin will be right here. I'll be right here, and there will be some others down here that you can just grab us by the hand and say, man, introduce me. To this Christ and we will. I wonder would you stand and let me pray for you.